Hello, and welcome to this, another episode of Frame and Reference. I'm your host, Kenny McMillan, and you're listening to episode 112 with Adriano Goldman, DP of Andor and The Crown. Enjoy. I, uh, I did want to know, because, you know, obviously everyone's been on break with the strikes and all. Have you been uh, watching anything cool recently or, or um, ha- how else have you been occupying your time now that there's not quite uh, as much stuff going on? Oh, that's a good question. I haven't seen, for instance, I'm re- I really want to see Oppenheimer. I haven't had the chance. Oh, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. So on IMAX and digital. Really? Yeah. It's, it's it's staggering how much more detail there is. I mean, I just forgot, but like the digital, the um, IMAX capture is so much cleaner than even 70 millimeter. It's wild. In the digital version, you don't quite notice, but when you see it in, in full projection IMAX, it's, it's at least as a DP, I don't know if regular people notice, but like it, it's shocking how much like you can see into the blacks. Oh, there's no noise. Like it's just, it's fascinating. And the, and the depth of field that is very specific about that format. I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, um, so I haven't seen much because we, we also moved houses. I was finishing, I've been uh, finishing season, the crown season six, which is the last one. So I was busy in July uh, in post-production. And then I got a commercial that happily took me to the, the Maldive Islands for the first time. Nice. So I had, I had one shooting day at the Maldive Islands and three days off. So it was really a nice, kind of a nice treat anyway, after a long season on the crown. Uh, but I am a little behind in terms of like, you know, just using this free time to feed myself with, you know, more images and just to get to know what people are doing. So I think that's probably now that I moved to the new house and, you know, there's a, you know, there's a question mark about the next couple months anyway. So I think this is a good moment, uh, Eventually, honestly, just to try and put the stress aside and the anxiety related to the uh, this indefinitely on hold sort of, of, of moment that we were leaving. I mean, I had a deal closed just before the strikes uh, started and it, it was just amazing, like finishing on the crown after almost eight years and, and then you know, managing to get another very interesting job that was supposed to start now in September. Now we don't know. So, you know, let's see. I mean, there's ways, I think there's commercials to do. There's hopefully a couple uh, UK um, movies. I I was going to say low budget movies, but not necessarily, but there's a couple that I, you know, that I read recently that are not big movies, but I think they can go on because uh, the actors are with equity and it's a British production. So I think we'll hear about, you know, small European productions still kind of, it might be actually a very good moment for them to, to, to be in production because now everybody's available. You can gather a very, very good crew. You know, everybody I think is going to be keen to, to jump in immediately or whatever it's real. Right. Um, I still, I, to be honest, I'm still hopeful that this is going to be solved by the end of beginning of September. Uh, it might be a little optimistic now. I don't know, but you know, Friday they had the, they had a meeting. So hopefully this is going to become a, the only, the, the other issue about this, uh, uh, strikes is the level of secrecy that yeah. involved in this negotiation. So you, you absolutely don't know if things are progressing or not progressing. 
Um, so it's a mystery. It, it feels like a man-made pandemic, right? right. After, only after two years of a real, real uh, social, you know, uh, massive event where we all had to, you know, stop. And then right after we all had to swab and test and protect ourselves and protect the actors. So it was a huge effort when I did Andor. So yeah. this is between, uh, seasons four and five, uh, on the crown. So I managed to do a year on like on Andor, I did the entire first season and we, I mean, it was excruciating. I mean, the, the fact that we had to use masks for an entire year and testing three times a week and waiting for the tests. And then, you know, somebody goes down and disappears for a week or two. And, and then we did so well, right yeah. after, you know, after was over. So it's kind of a, yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not a pleasant sort of a situation for most of us, I'd say in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually going to say you're hundred percent right. It is. It does feel like pandemic 2.0 where at least we had like the practice of not working, but at the same yeah. time, it's like <laughs> three years of roughly of, uh, you know, I was talking to Benji Bakshi who shot, um, uh, strange new worlds, the star Trek show. And we were talking about in the downtime, like things that we like to do, or at least, you know, you start to feel burnout when you don't, as you said, feed yourself with something else, you know, uh, if you're, if you're just constantly outputting and not taking in. And uh, it feels like everyone was taking in so much during the pandemic that when we finally got to work, it was like, let's go. And there was just big burst of creativity. And now it's like, hey, and stop. Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. It can feel very... Um, I don't know, not anxiety is not really the right word, but it's, it's definitely feels like you're being pulled back on a leash again. And we knew it was coming. And I think one thing is you, if you think, well, I'm going to have eight weeks off, you know, so let's plan for that. It's the beginning of the summer, you know, maybe we can even enjoy this moment. Yeah. But uh, like going back to my point about the mystery involved, sure. so is it two months? Is it three months? Is it six months? So. It makes, it is making people very anxious and, you know, for good reasons. Um, I, I also think that, uh, um, we, I think we get so addicted to work that sure. a lot of this excess of free time is not necessarily healthy for us. I mean, we want to engage in being creative and being with our teams and, you know, being, producing something. Uh, I, I absolutely admit that I, I function much better when I'm, and when I'm working yeah. and I think especially now, of course, this is, it shouldn't be a, like a, a conversation about my, let's say personal life in, in, in present, but the fact is I just bought a house. So it's a real thing. It's a real issue to be managed, right? It's yeah. not just like, I want to work or I could be earning money and I'm not, and I'm, I'm using my savings. I mean, thank I mean, lucky me, I have savings, right? right? Because I can probably carry on for a couple more months, et cetera. But like you also struggle with this um, lack of perspective. I think that's a real thing, right? So, and it's been three months already, right? On the, the WGA uh, strikes, which is a, it's a good period of time. Uh, anyway, so that's one thing. Um, the other thing you said about... Um, um, what I also, no, no, the fact is because we were put on hold because of COVID and then this burst in creativity, like you said, I mean, I'm also aware stories being told that 
after 2008, when they, there was a, you know, the strikes, uh, there was an, I mean, 2009, 2010, it, it happened exactly the same, a massive right. boom in, uh, creativity, new shows. I, I'm actually very optimistic about 24 and 25. I think we're going to have excellent years, but like you, we have to leave the present, right? Yeah. So that, that's all we got. It's today and then tomorrow. And so it's, it's kind of, it's a tough one. Also my two boys, I have two sons that also work in the industry. So now we're all home, like thinking how long this is going to last. Should I go for a trip? Should I actually enjoy a couple of weeks, you know, abroad or somewhere? Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a very particular moment that we all, we all face. And also you realize how much uh, the US and the UK industry are now just basically one and yeah. how much, you know, the things that happen in the US affect, uh, the UK market. I mean, dramatically aside from, you know, maybe some local small movies and, and commercials, etc., and theater, because it's be really big here, the theater scene and that, you know, carries on. Um, but anyway, I mean, it's, it's. I think we're gonna we're gonna remember this for a long yeah. time. Yeah. Well, and to your point about being optimistic, um, and Oppenheimer is I have been absolutely loving because I saw Barbie, I saw Oppenheimer twice, and it's been so much fun to see how much fun people are having going to the theater. Like it, you know, everyone's always talking about oh, the theater's gonna die, and I'm like, fucking Barbie just solved that problem for everyone. That thing's well, that's a billion dollars so fast. Yeah. Top Gun Maverick, I think, showed us yeah. that people still want to go to the movies. And then you have a little disappointment when you see Indy 5, which, yeah. which I think, to be honest, it's kind of a, it's, it's a, it's a wrong franchise to put your money in now, right? Yeah. Because the kids, the, 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 let's say the, the age that you want to see going to the movies, you know, let's say between 25 and 35. They barely know who Indiana Jones was. I mean, oh, my father once told me he was a cool hero. But like, you know, trying to revive it, I think it was a, you know, a kind of a wrong strategy. Of course, we, I love, you know, the idea there's another indie Same. movie and, you know, Harrison Ford is still there uh, and how much the first movie, I mean, was something special for me in my, you know, film buff sort of, of, of period. Uh, but anyway, then, oh, Indy 5 is not doing well. And then Barbie comes and then, you know, uh, yeah, I think there's, yeah, there's still a lot to be explored in this, you know, industry. And I mean, even if you call feature films, theatrical feature films, a niche, because that's not where the money is going to now, but there's still, that, that it's, it's still alive. It's still very much alive. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I, um, worked a lot in in and around hospitality for a while, uh, in my college years and a little bit after. And I've always been fascinated with the idea of like, um, not just restaurants or anything, but cur curating ex an experience. Uh, and I think, you know, in one way theaters, you know, you've got places like Alamo draft house or whatever, where they're like, you know, nicer chairs, uh, food service, whatever, you know, your Dolby theaters, whatever they, again, nicer chairs and stuff. But, um, I think the the easy way, just coming from like a an exhibitor's point of view, that I've never been an exhibit. I don't know why I'm pointing at myself and saying that, uh, but um, is just to more curate, you know, 
better curate the theater experience, not just renting a seat, you know, but like creating an, an environment in which you want to go spend kind of the day there. The Century City Mall over here by my house um, is like the nicest fucking mall in, law in the world. And it's got a really, really nice AMC there. And, uh, you know, you, me and my friends are always like, well, let's get there a few hours early. Let's grab a couple. There's like outside bars and stuff. So you'll like sit there, eat some sushi, have some drinks, have a good time and then walk into the theater. Like that theater going experience, in my opinion, is like where a lot of theater should be angling towards, you know, creating mm -hmm. a, a full mm -hmm. environment to go see. Because then people want to anchor their afternoon around a movie instead of just popping in and popping out, you know. Yeah, also I think it was a little bit damaging this kind of a reputational myth that people created that going to a theater is very expensive because you have right. to pay for parking and then you have to pay $10 for popcorn and et cetera. So I think there's still a little bit that can be done so people mm. can feel more attracted to come and, well, I'm not going to, well, because if I compare, I can spend just $15 on a Netflix subscription and I have a, well, it's not the same thing. No. So you're paying, you're paying because you're paying for the experience, right? Like you say, I mean, there's nothing like Dolby Surround. There's nothing like, you know, IMAX and et cetera. So yeah, I mean, it is a different sort of trip. So you have, you have to go for it and the, the magic of the dark room, you know, the lights go, go off and it's still, still very magical. I don't think one cancels the other one. I mean, I think that the only mystery now or, or, or people or people should be working on is how to promote smaller movies, right? Because yeah. a movie like Barbie, they spend 200 million in production and another 200 million in promotion. So there are probably more, good heavens. That film was everywhere. Probably more. So I think that's a, that's a thing now about, because the thing that we say now, you jump from either you do a feature film for 15 million or 150 million. And everything in between go, goes to the streamers. Because if you have 80 million, you prefer doing 10 episodes, you know, 8 million each, than actually yeah. doing a drama for 18 million that, oh, how's that going to go, right? Uh, anyway, I don't, I don't really understand economics or, you know, how to fix this. <laughs> I failed that problems, class. But, <laughs> but what I do know is theaters are still alive. They're still building them, right? Yeah. So that must be a reason for that. Yeah. Yeah. I did, uh, kind of touching on the like magic of cinema and stuff. I did read that kind of Jacques Cousteau is what kind of got you into filmmaking, seeing, uh, <laughs> I suppose in a weird way, representation of a cinematographer, someone holding a camera in that thing. Yeah. Did you, did that launch you more into the direction of documentary or did that just kind of show you that movies were made by someone and then you, and then you jumped into sort of more, uh, theatrical style film. That's a very good question because I've done documentaries, but not, uh, that was not my goal. Uh, I've done it because I've worked with people, very interesting people. They used to do commercials, music videos and documentaries. So I would, you know, do a little bit of everything, but no, I mean, it, there was, a there was a, a kind of a discovery. Basically, I basically understood there's someone behind the camera, actually physically holding the camera it was just a massive discovery because you just, if you don't think I, 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 I still think that a lot of people that watch what we do don't actually realize people don't never watch the credits. So, and even if they do, I mean, why do they need so many people, right? 300 people on a scroll, people don't realize what's involved. Uh, we struggle as cinematographers to explain what we do. 
I mean, you have to explain that you and the art director or the production designer are the main artistic collaborators with and for a director. Um, but also, you, you, you're not allowed to forget makeup and costume and everybody else that's you know, sound and mixing and, you know, editing and etc. But it's funny how it just appears on your screen. You pay your subscription and you press play and it just appears to you. Uh, and it's just, I think, honestly, I think it's one of, one of the things we have failed, uh, is to, because I think there's this idea that what we do is glamorous, right? Oh, you work on the film industry. Oh, you know, are you an actor? That's the first question, right? Oh, are you an actor? No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm always behind the camera. Oh, so what do you do? So I think, especially I, I, I can address this because when we had this monster president in Brazil for four years, Bolsonaro, and he yeah. was verbal against artists, against, uh, you know, verbally saying, because they're all lefties, because, you know, we cannot trust them. They just want to, they want government money to do their own things, which is absolutely not true. Yeah. And I think we failed, we fa we have failed to, to present and show what, it, what an industry actually is. And what that, what that, but for you guys in the US, it's been called industry forever. So you right. can more or less understand you have to show up at eight and then you leave at six. And in the forties and fifties, that was very much the case. I mean, you work for the studio, you show up in the day, you can be a grip or an electrician or a PA. That's your job. You're going to the industry. I mean, now it's a little bit more, you know, uh, 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 less clear. I mean, in terms of like, right. you know, all this, uh, uh, it's like a, more like an octopus now. Right. So there's yeah. many, many arms and uh, people, a lot of jobs overlap now too. Jobs overlap. Uh, but I think we failed especially. And I felt that in, in Brazil, how do you, um, how do you confront a speech against artists? Right. Because if that's the notion that artists wake up late, you know, they only go to, they only go yeah, right. very expensive resorts, you know, on their vacation time. Uh, they make a lot of money. Now they're, now they're selling alcohol and perfume and etc. So that's the image, but that's right. Brad Pitt. That's Brad Pitt, isn't it? That's uh, Jay-Z. I mean, Rock, it's, not, yeah. it's, not, it's not us. So, but I think we failed. And uh, in, in a sense that we need to uh, tell people that there's from truck drivers, to nurses, to painters, to carpenters, to, I mean, it's the, it's, a, it's an industry. I mean, there's thousands and thousands of people. I mean, the, the, the LA mayor said on the Friday that she's, she's keen to actually be part of the negotiations. You guys have no idea. She was, she was trying to explain, you have no idea what this is gonna, how this is gonna hurt the city. It's not. Yeah. And she got booed. Well, it's true, but it's true, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, she can be booed, but she's not just complaining. She's actually saying, I'm here to help. Yeah. Right? No, hundred percent. So yeah, I don't know her. Sorry. This is only this stuff that I read on the news, but. Oh, no, uh, Karen, yeah. she's, she's great, but she did. I thought it was wild that she stood up there. Cause she was also talking about, she was talking about the strike. She was talking about homelessness, uh, the homelessness crisis. And just, everyone was booing her. And I was like, can you let the woman speak? She's trying to help. Like, well, Anyway, so I think that's the one, one of the things, I mean, I, uh, I, I try to, and I still think it's complex.
to explain what a DOP does. Uh, oh, you deal with lights, but how exactly, right? So, and I, I don't think we should actually, I mean, a little bit of mystery, it's good, you know, because, yes. you know, you feel like a magician, you feel like you hold some sort of a knowledge that, you know, it's, it's in your hands and in your mind. I mean, it was much more like that when we used to shoot on film, because then you're, you're, only, you're the only one that can actually appreciate a sharp and clean image through your viewfinder. I mean, you're, fir you're the first viewer of every film you do, right? So it's a, it's a huge privilege. I think now it's a little bit more organic in a way. I mean, there's those, those big monitors on set. So, I mean, it's a little bit more democratic, but uh, still, I think it's, yeah. Yeah, well, you touched on a few things there. One, I've, I've often had to explain to people who say like, oh, the cinematography in that movie was great. And I always go, no, the production design was great. The cinematographer was pretty chill on that film. I think production designers always get, or uh, uh, cinematographers always get credit for what the production designers did. Um, and then I have to and, explain and what they funnily enough, And funnily enough, if you mention the Bourne trilogy, for instance, mm. because it's handheld and the camera has a, an attitude, you know, it's almost like a character in a way. Then people, then people realize, oh, that's what you do. You know, but right. again, like you say, there's not much lighting on the Bourne trilogy, right? It's much, it's much more about choreography and blocking and long lenses and editing and rhythm. But it's funny how if you grab a camera on your shoulder and then people see your work, if you try to be discreet, you know, and just be a storyteller and just help, help the story. Um, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I can contradict myself immediately as well. Because I'm great at that. My intention, my, my intention when we started on the crown, I always tried to be invisible. Like, I mean, there's enough informa visual information in costume, locations, period, hair and makeup and uh, furniture and pe period cars and, you know, and the history involved and the dialogue. So you, you're learning something uh, with the show. So I, my, my, I, I, we, I remember us saying, we don't want, we don't want to be this, we don't want to do this in a glamour, a glamorous sort of way. I mean, mm -hmm. no fake backlights, no, you know, no rim, uh, you know, unjustified, unjustified, uh, backlights, whatever. And, and no, no, shouldn't be glossy. I mean, we started in the fifties where London and uh, even the, like the Royal family's properties were kind of run down. So there's no reason to actually go over glamorous for the first season, especially, right? Right. But then, you know, we got all the accolades and we got, we got even trying to be discreet and just not showing, you know, not showing off, let's say. I mean, the, the appreciation, you know, the industry appreciation for the crown and the visuals and, you know, it's, I am still kind of, uh, kind of surprised every time I think that it's the fifth season and it's my fifth nomination. I really never thought this was going to happen. Honestly, I honestly didn't. No, I get uh, you, yeah. Especially season five. And I must be honest, because because I was doing Andor and I I only had time. I almost couldn't do season five. Uh, but then we managed because I love the team and we know we've been, we've been together for many, many years. They managed to, so the solution was, because I knew the director I was going to work with, uh, the solution was, shrinking my prep 
So, okay, we wait for you, but we cannot push the block, right? So that means you're going to have less breath than usual. And I said, I'm, I'm in, it's fine. I'm in. So I only did two episodes. I did Mumu and I did the finale, right? The, the last episode on, uh, season five. And that was a much shorter sort of commitment for me. If I, especially if I compared to season six that I did right after, it took me a year mm. to, to do season six, two, blo two blocks on season six. It took me a year. The other one was just like three months, right? I started right. in September. It took me to December. So it was really good. So I, I was not, you know, I it was just, I was happy that I, I was able to rejoin the team, but like, you know, maybe now there's opportunities for other DOPs that, you know, also did the crown to get nominated or get more attention, etc. And I'll come back for season six. But for some reason, Moo is the one that people remember, you know, and it's kind of a spin off and, uh, it's very, yeah, it's a very specific episode. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it does go to show that you, what you are doing, uh, is not only, um, let's say good, <laughs> but, uh, that people, that people really identify with your style. Cause that actually brings up something that I kind of wanted to talk about, which was, um, between the crown and Andor, there is kind of a similar, like your visual style is apparent. It's not like, yeah. you know, some, some DPs are really good at really morphing what they do. Um, some, some DPs, you know, we use David Fincher as an example all the time, uh, cause he's easy to point at cause you know, even between DPs, he's got that thing he does, but, um, you know, you've got, uh, I guess technically not the future, but futuristic space sci-fi versus literal the past. And they both have a very similar visual style. And I was wondering if you could speak to that um, sophisticated realism, as, I, as I've heard you call it, and how you approach that. Because I heard on The Crown, you know, you're always lighting from the outside using practicals, We're, you know, in in the jail set of, of Andor or any of those interiors for the the planet. Are you doing the exact same thing? Are you building lights into the set in the more futuristic ones versus just lamps and stuff for the crown? How are you, how are you bridging that? Well, I'd say that my, you're right. You're absolutely right. The approach was similar. Um, I, I, I mean, I was, I mean, literally jumping when I got the offer, you know, to do under and, and I was even happier when I realized it was not going to be on the Mandalorian sort of realm, right. it was more like, you know, Rogue One sort of style mm -hmm. that is much more realistic, much more touchable. And, you know, and you feel the dust and you, there's a lot, there's a lot of sweat, you know, it's not a perfect world. It's like, a, you know, it's very, uh, it's realistic. Very, it's very realistic. Yeah. Um, I've so, told everyone, like, even if you don't like Star Wars, you should watch Andor. Cause it's not, it doesn't really feel like a star in, in such a way. It doesn't feel like a star Wars show. It just feels like an amazing drama. And I've been screaming ever since it came out. A bunch of the DPs I interviewed after that came out, they were like, can you ask uh, Adriano this for me? <laughs> and then we kept rescheduling, but yeah, it was, it touched a lot of DP hearts uh, that way. But, but, and, and then also, of course, there's the color, the color palette that is very different, you know, on Andor and, and the crown that I had to adjust a little bit too. Not only the way I shot it, also the way uh, I graded, of course, you know, in the end. But 
whenever there's a window, whenever there's uh, whenever there's an opportunity for a realistic approach, that's going to be my starting point. Uh, the, the dialogue between the GOP and the production designer is absolutely strong and vital on both shows. But with uh, something like Andor, you have to be, I had to be absolutely involved on the actual set design because right. I really wanted to talk about, you know, built-in sources and especially like sets like the prison, there's, where there's no windows. I want to rely on the practicals that are in vision, that are still believable and, and used and dirty and customized and whatever. This is, of course, part of the, the designer's job, but also, you know, in terms of like approaching it realistically, it's not just where the sources are, but how do they look? I mean, do they look believable or, you know, we need more diffusion or we need more dirt or we need to age them a little bit more. Um, like because on on Star Wars, it's 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 a, it's like you said, it's not futuristic. It's very weird because it's everything. Everything is used on right. on the sets. Everything, even a brand new set, you have a team that comes and do scratches, you know, and step on the wall just to you know just to make them more more used, more believable. And the, and the comparison they all make between Star Wars and Star Trek, this is not Star right. Trek, this is Star Wars, this is Star Wars. And we have to remember, this is a, uh, it's a, a galaxy far, far away, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So it's very hard for us to understand that it is period, especially right. long in the past. But that's the magic of, of well, George Lucas, isn't it? Who would think something like that? So you're next, actually not looking forward, you're looking backwards to something. And also there's no Earth on Star Wars, so they never mention Earth. Nobody's coming from Earth ever. So this is again in a galaxy far, far away without any contact with uh, our history. It's, it's really, really specific. But I, was, I, was, I felt very lucky because we, maybe because of the pandemic and because of uh, we are in a way a prequel for Rogue One, the approach was much more, basically we shot Andor on locations. Right. So it, everything was built. Every little, every set you see. Yeah. That planet set is nuts. The town or whatever that is. Very easy. Very. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. Mo and Leo. Mo and Leo is one of the Disney's uh, VFX supervisor, uh, Lucasfilm Disney VFX that was involved in Rogue One, like a proper guru. He, I remember we actually went to that set when it was still, you know, being built. And he said, I've never seen anything as big as this for Rogue One or for any other show. This is, this is the biggest set I've ever seen. Uh, and everything, the prison, like you mentioned, you know, and the scale of that prison and the scale of the episodes, you know, and you're actually following casting when he's in the prison and all the intercuts with. Mon Mothra and, you know, and all the, the other characters and, and, uh, Luther and it's so, so, so rich, but yes, you're right. I mean, the approach is re realistic. I mean, I want to be myself. I want to be able to believe it. You know, I don't want to just lights coming from the, you know, the, the ceiling. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. So well, uh, in a, what, what was that? What was the, what was the cost? I think where, this was Peter Jackson. I think Peter Jackson's DOP. That someone, because it's pure fantasy, right? Lord of the Rings. 
And I think there was a, 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 a situation where someone asked him about where's that light coming from? Did you know about this? Yeah, I, I quoted it last same episode. Place, same place as the music. Yeah. Thank you for <laughs> giving me context on that because I've been quoting that for a minute and I, I can't remember where I heard it, but you're, I think you're 100% right. It was Lord of the Rings. <laughs> where's that light coming from? Well, same place as the music. I, yeah, so I'm, I mean, I also want to be able to allow myself to go a little bit more onto the a kind of a magic realism whenever it's possible. So when you work with, even on the crown, when you work with Stephen Daldry, he always brings a little bit more magic into whatever he does. So he actually won an Emmy on season two for his Pater Familia episode that I shot, but funnily enough, I, I actually picked another one to submit, um, was fairy tale, another one that I absolutely love, but that, no, sorry, sorry. Fairy tale was season four was barrel on season two. And then he did, uh, part of familiar. So if you remember, he lost, he, uh, Philip loses his wife, his sister on a plane accident. Mm -hmm. And then he dreams about, you know, kind of seeing her and he walks into the crash. And then she, he sees her actually wide, you know, dead there. And that was not on the script. I mean, that was Dodgy insisting with Peter Morgan just to be, to bring a little bit more horror and a little bit of more magic realism to, even to a show like The Crown. So, and I, I love when that, whenever that happens, you know, that gives you a, a, a little moments, you know, two minutes on screen that you can just uh, go off your route yeah. a little bit and then come back, but just, just, oh, there's a little detour here that's going to take me back to the same road, but you know, let's just enjoy this moment. And Dordu is brilliant. I mean, no spoils, but now for the finale finale, the last, last episode we did for season six, there's a little bit, you know, of his magic again. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I really hope that people appreciate it. It's such. It's a proper finale, you know, it's longer than the other episode that they, they, they normally are. That's the only spoil. <laughs> gotcha. I did, Boy. you know, something that'll be kind of illustrative because I try to make this podcast somewhat educational. Um, but I think something that'll be kind of illustrative to the style of lighting that you do would be two similar scenes. So in the crown, obviously you've got a lot of times there are, um, sort of dark ish rooms lit from outside, uh, with practicals. And maybe some, uh, some, uh, atmosphere, you know, yeah. I know you, yeah. you talked about using like the glimmer glass and the, and the smoke and stuff. Um, yeah. and obviously having a dark room is much nicer than say that jail set from Andor where everything is white and lit. So, but still a lot of people in a room having a conversation around a table. So how are you, um, building contrast into your image and how are you approaching say close-ups or maybe a shot of three people or whatever in either set, one where you've got contrast built into the set and you need to kind of light it a little more, maybe add some light versus, uh, and, or where you need to remove light. Um, well, if you want to use the main, um, prison, you know, the factory level yes. as we call yes. the, 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 the white, the super white and big room. So every individual strip of light that you see on the walls are individually controlled, right? Like a stereotubes so, or panels. Yeah. 
yeah, LEDs and Astera tubes, but individually. So whatever, whatever it's not in short is off. So there's a lot of turning, there's a lot of turning on and off lights, you know, oh, I'm just going to move, you know, 10 degrees to the left. Don't want that source anymore. I mean, it's, there's a lot of bounce still right. because it's a white room. Uh, so then you, then I think initially I was checking, well, first of all, I don't want to add too much contrast because now we know where we are and we know this is a white room, right? Right. But I want to, I want to shape the faces a little bit better. So I'll cancel, I'll, I'll switch off all the lights that are not in shot and I'll bring a little bit of an egg, but mm. also not too close to the faces because otherwise it turns into a, like a different show, right? So yeah. you have to, it doesn't look natural. natural. It doesn't look natural. Um, so it's. On a show, I think on a show like the the the, the Andor was very much about making sure that I had control uh, on every single individual source, mm. so I don't have to compromise. Uh, just uh, adding to your question or answer or to my answer, there was also the challenge of trying to make that place look not always the same. So you know, there's the drills, there's you know, an F10 when the lights, the, the power goes off, you know, and then it changes and we had to create something that looks like emergency lights. Uh, so, and then, and then the lights come back on again. So there was a, a dramatic light curve on, on, on F10 that, I mean, it was really demanding in terms of programming all the lights and even kind of, you know, trying to bring all creative people to actually approve because it could be orange, could be green, could be red. What is an emergency? light situation in the, on this set. Right. So there was a lot of interesting creative conversations about tone and, and color palette and etc. So all, all fascinating. Um, for Ferrix, for instance, contrast was much more welcome. So, you know, you're shooting exteriors, eventually it's a sunny day, which is, I mean, in that case was really welcome anyway, but you know, now I have, I have more freedom in a way to either bounce. Or, or, or bring a little bit more nag or even diffuse the, my, my sunlight when possible or, you know, or, or even bring a, a source to add a little bit of a backlight for continuity because we started the scene and it was sunny and now it's not sunny anymore. So it's, it's let's say, a little bit more uh, uh, conventional filmmaking. Mm. And I'd say apps eight, 8, 9, and 10, they were much more uh, technical and required much more planning than the crown usually does. You know, mm -hmm. the crown is uh, uh, also in terms of how, how you prep for a show like Andor and how you prep for a show like the crown, the crown, you, you actually, you have everything in your hands. You can go to a location, you can bring your director and discuss a three shot. So we're going to have these three characters here, how to position them. Well, I mean, do you want them close to the window? Are you in the far from the window or so you have opportunities to almost like envision what is actually going to happen on your shoot on, on your shoot day. So you, you come not with like preconceived ideas, but you know, the room, you know, you know where your sources are and you know, your director and how to deal with his taste and his choreography and et cetera. So you, you're a collaborator on like working with pieces that you're so familiar with. That is, it feels a little, it's not like, I'm not going to say it's, you'll find your comfort zone because it's a massive show. Like every day on the crown is, you know, it's always sure. kind of massive and challenging anyway, but mm -hmm. 
But for me, I'm not going to lie and say, I mean, there was a progression. I mean, season one, I was anxious, absolutely anxious every single day. Am I doing well? I mean, are they liking this? I mean, uh, you know, every, everybody, I mean, everybody was new to me. London was new to me. Everything was new. Every single location was like, wow, this is massive and et cetera. So all this awe feeling was, I mean, I'm never going to forget it. And then, then there's a progression where you know the, your crew much, much better. Dialogue is much, you know, efficient and, and fast. And, and then you get, and then you, I jumped straight from season four, three months off because of COVID, and then jumped straight to Andor and nothing existed. Nothing. Right. No sets, no costume, no locations, nothing. And, well, can I, can I try the goggles? Can I just go for a, vir a virtual sort of a, a scout? Well, not yet. We're still, we're still building them. We're still designing the set. So it was crazy. I mean, you, you know, there's a, this massive truck coming in your direction with, you know, principal photography, you know, right. okay, so this is a long breath, but it's coming. Right. So when am I going to get to see a set and to be able to bring my gaffer and discuss, you know, lighting and I mean, the first two months prepping for Andor was like, what, how is this going to happen? You know, cause you can have 10 meetings every single day. You can read the script 50 times with your director and try storyboards and let's have the storyboard artist, storyboard artist. What is it going to draw? I mean, right. you have to imagine a set. Right. Or, 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 or try to storyboard it just for dialogues and, or, or, or eventually, I mean, we had to do extensive storyboards for action scenes, right. uh, because of VFX, et cetera. But that, that only happened much later during prep when we actually could go to Ferrix and, you know, photo board, you know, a set that was still being painted and et cetera. But that prep was like something, but it's such, uh, you learn so much when you do this yeah. and there was another reason that I, why I was so fascinated by doing something like Andor because it's, you know, now I feel that I kind of can navigate, you know, these, you know, it could be, could be period, could be contemporary, could be sci-fi or, um, it's funny. It was really funny. And it's funny enough. We did on, on the crown season, that season three that we did the episode with the astronauts coming to, coming to London and, you know, the, the Prince Philip fascination for, you know, moon, uh, the moon exploring and, and, the, the, you know, it was amazing. And then suddenly I'm doing something, you know, in space. <laughs> yeah. I did want to ask, uh, cause I'm noticing more and more, I was having this conversation, uh, online with someone about camera choices in, in filmmaking. And it's kind of goes back to what you were saying about there needs to be a little bit of magic still, but I think opening up the floor and letting people know what we do is important. Cause on the one hand, it's good so that they know there's real people working on it. But then on the other hand, they feel like they know what they're talking about. And then this whole discourse pops up about, you know, like with Oppenheimer, like there's no VFX. And it's like, oh, there was a little bit, you know, like off. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but, yeah. um, uh, all that to say, that was a huge tangent. Uh, what makes you choose the Venice to shoot all of these things? Is it, is that your choice is, uh, is it just something you're comfortable with or cause you know, like for 
the crown, for instance, one could argue like, oh, we should shoot film because it's period, you know? Well, I think film was never actually considered, but I, oh, was I bet coming, not, but <laughs> yeah. I was coming, what was it? I think burnt. Oh my God. My memory burnt that I shot in 2014, just before I started on the crown, it was my first feature on, uh, digital cameras. And I shot it on Alexa, it was the Alexa XT, if I remember sure. well. So I've been always kind of a, a an Ari person, even cameras. I mean, I remember when I shot uh, the company you keep in Canada, and then I shot August Osage County, fascination by using Panavision cameras and, you know, how cool they were and the, and the Primo lenses and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, you, I grew up in Brazil where we had Ari cameras and Aiton cameras mainly, right. and then Europe as well, Aries and Atens and et cetera. And then Panavision here is really strong. So you, you, wanna, you can shoot with uh, PV cameras, you can. But anyway, I had my first experience or shooting a feature film on digital cameras. I really liked the texture. I really liked, you know, the look of the movie and et cetera. And then uh, the crown, you know, uh, happens to me. And I, so let's move to London and let's, tr you know, let's discuss technicalities because now the studios, it's a, it's a, it's a digital platform. So they must have something to say, right. About, you know, the workflow and et cetera. And they did. So, uh, it, they were absolutely from day one, they said, you can choose your camera, but you're gonna have to shoot it this one in 4k. It needs to be 4k beginning to end capture in 4k. Uh, and I remember like, oh, I struggled a little bit. I said, look, let's test the red camera that was available. Uh, I don't remember which one dragon probably. Yeah. yeah. Um, then the Sony F 55, um, and the, and the Alexa, I remember that I put them, I put those three together. Cause I still, I was still hopeful to be able to go back to Netflix and say, it's good enough. It really is good enough. And you can up res it if you want, and you'll be fine. No, yeah. no, no chance. And I, I mean, now I can probably change my mind. I haven't tried the, the red cameras for a few years now. I know how much more, you know, evolved they are, but I didn't like the red. I didn't like the grain, uh, the noise. Um, yeah. also I, sometimes I feel they're, they're really, really a little, a little too sharp for my taste. Uh, interesting color separation, uh, a, a little bit more specific in terms of color separation than the other two cameras, but like super video, like it just felt to me that it, it felt like a video camera. Mm. Um, so cannot use the Alexa cause it's not 4k. So let's do the 55s. And so I did the first two seasons on the 55s and cook Pancros. It worked out well. I have this amazing colorist that has been with me since season one, Asa Show, and we've been working together like on the lot and, you know, the DSAT colors, what kind of, what kind of treatment we can add in post, but there's actually not much. It's much more, it's more, it's more, we always deal more with density and, and saturation more than anything else. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so I shot seasons one, two on. 55s and cook bankers season three, it was always the intention. You probably heard this before we 
I actually had this idea in mind that whenever the cast changes, I'll change the glass. Right. So then I couldn't change the camera body for season three, but I moved to the super speeds, Zai super speeds. Right. Then the Venices came out during the season and I went back to my producers and said, look, there's a massive upgrade that we need to change bodies. Well, I don't think we can. Uh, financially, because we every, we we have to, we had two units. Every unit got four bodies, right. so I don't think I can. I'm, I, I don't think even a show like The Crown can afford just changing eight bodies at once. So if you're happy to carry on with three bodies per unit, maybe. Uh, so and I did say I said no. Let's not compromise, but let's please budget this for season four. All right. Mm -hmm. So we must then go do season three with the 55 and then we, and then we moved to the Venices on season three, still on super speeds. So, uh, uh, consistent consistency in terms of lenses and cast. And then we, on seasons five and six, we kept the Venices and moved to the cook S fours. Right. Two seasons on the, the S fours now. Yeah. The, uh, do you notice that the the Venice um, body or sensor give you anything um, that you're missing in other cameras, or is that more just like you're something you're comfortable with? Um, I don't. Well, basically, I don't think I had I have to compromise in any way because I'm using Venice. It's all like oh. But it's not the Ari. Oh, for the record, I love the Venice. I think yeah, it's no, great no. <laughs> and I love the Ari, and I love the Ari cameras. And but since they're all, I think they're they're right there. They're big. Those two. <laughs> um, uh, but I, now I'm a little bit more familiar with you know the Venice, and now especially the Venice Two, that is even more film friendly, user friendly. Uh, you know, the Rialto mode is absolutely genius, and um, it's it's a. It's a very good equipment to work with. And, and for the shows I have done, I don't really think, I mean, the, the, the last seasons on the crown, I honestly don't think that if I had done them on Ari cameras, I don't think they would look different. I think the, right. this, this thing we found, I mean, Asa, myself, my DIT, I mean, they kind of, I think, but I'm actually happy to whatever I do next to actually maybe try the Aries again and then, you know, feel that same ah excitement for, you know, trying something that is new. I haven't tried the, the Alexa 35 or even the 65 yet. So there's I a lot love to use the 65. Yeah. There's a lot to, to learn. And I'm yeah. keen. To, yeah. I, uh, so I've got like a full, I got a C500 and, you know, obviously shot plenty of Super 35. And, and between Super 35 and Full Frame, I've always been like, yeah, I like Full Frame, you know, the physical, not the 4K-ness or anything or the depth of field that everyone obsesses about, but the physical resolution of the sensor does give the image more softer tonality that I like. But then I got this Fujifilm medium format stills camera and I'm like, oh God, because I shoot medium format film too. And just uh, a massive ass sensor really does look really nice. <laughs> like again, not the depth of field, just the tonality of the image is just so um, tactile. It's just, I love it so much. And now I've turned into a sensor oh, nerd. Oh, so, sorry, sorry. I, I, just recently, one of my focus pullers, maybe that's the same camera. You, you mean the Fuji large, digital large format? Yeah, the GFX. It's, it's out of this world. Oh, isn't it? <laughs> It is. 
It is. I mean, it's just, he just took, I mean, we were just having lunch and I just, I was so surprised when I saw the camera and he took a picture of me, like just looking surprised. And when he showed me, I mean, it's just like the best portrait ever. Yeah. When I, uh, when we hop off this call, I'll, uh, DM you on Instagram, some portraits. I just took my friend Ian and I'm like, I did minimal editing. It's literally just like balancing some light. Cause I only had one, you know, flash. Um, and it just, it just comes out perfect. It's so good. Um, so now I'm big into big sensors. You know, Alexa 35 is great, but if they use the ALEV 4 sensor to make a 65 or an LF, but like, ugh, not that I'm I mean, ever on the set. Imagine, imagine if Fuji, if Fuji decides to, to make a film camera. <laughs> I, so I am acquaintances with the Fuji team. And it's one of the things that I've always been in their ear about is like, let me, uh, consult on a Fujifilm cinema camera because I think they would destroy. I think they would do so well and they could agree the little film simulations in there for people who want to do that. Maybe, um, you know, F log two is an amazing gamma curve, um, really protects the highlights really well. Um, and obviously the, you know, their color science is, is out of this world. So, um, that is something if, if I can get that, I'll say that you're also interested in it. They'll pay us. Oh, uh, well, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I did want to talk, I, I, I'd heard you mention a few times in a few interviews about kind of being really, um, uh, fastidious about eye, eye lights, catch lights, uh -huh. catch lights. Uh -huh. And I was wondering if you could share, cause I am too, I, I am constantly, doesn't matter the movie. I almost don't know what people look like. I just know what their eye looks like. Cause I'm just constantly dialed in. I was wondering if you could give me some of the secrets of, of a good catch light and how it to not like affect the scene as well. Well, I, you know what, only to be really honest with you, usually my eye light is usually it's actually my key light, right? Mm. So try to position my key light. So I don't actually have to add a specific eye light, but every time I, I, every time I do this or every, every time I try to actually, especially let's say for a dark scene, I think I did that a little bit on Andor, just just a dado light. So mm. it's just a dado light at 10%. So you actually, it's more, it's more a reflection that you actually see in the eye than a source. So you're just seeing that dot just, just behind camera on the other side of, on the, on the dark side of camera, let's say, or the, or the, or the character, just to add a little bit of a sparkle. Um, that it's funny because that requires time. And sometimes we don't have that specific time just to add a, a, a little bit of a, on the crown, for instance, I think it's very rare that the eye, uh, the eye light is not the key light or a window or something that is a, as a big part of my lighting uh, uh, plan in a way. I mean, it's very rare. I mean, on burnt, burnt, I remember adding a couple, you know, just sparkles, but I try to, uh, try to avoid that in a way. I try always to convince my director to even like twist the actor a little bit or talk directly to the actor. You know, if you just, you don't need to move your face, but move your body. So you know that naturally they're going to offer a little bit more of that source. And it's, it's, I think it's a constant game of adjusting and adjusting and adjusting a little bit more. So it doesn't get too flat or frontal, but you still get the, also, for instance, what, um, um, on now on season six, I shot three episodes for, um, Christian 
a German director that we had on previous seasons on the crown, but he used, he used to work with a German DOP. So it was my first opportunity to actually work with him. And what directors bring in terms of, of course, their own knowledge and taste. So what is it a profile, right, for you? So is it one eye? So profile is a sharp profile, or I only see one eye. For Christian, no, he wants to see two eyes. Oh, that's not a profile, Christian. Uh, so, but what if the sparkle is only on the far eye and not on the inside, right? Mm. So that's another challenge. How do you add uh, a, an eye light to something? You like the lighting and you like the shape on the face, but you're missing something on the dark side. It could be a bounce board. It could be just something. So you don't actually, it's not shiny and sparky, but it used, but you reveal the eye. So you, you, you just lift the blacks a little bit. So you see it's there, right? But I'm, I, you know, I'm, I must confess, I don't, I've never been a technical DOP. Mm. I mean, I don't, I know what the lens offer me. I don't know how they're made, right? Uh, um, uh, I know what my lights can offer me and how much they progressed or they have progressed since season one. For instance, if I compare, I, I, I probably had 10, 15% of my sources were LED sources on season one. Now it's probably 80% of right. them. This is like in seven years, right? So I know what they offer me in terms of speed and color, uh, and color and, 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 and intensity and output and et cetera, because I try them a lot. When, so when something comes, something new comes, I always go and gaffer to the warehouses and we try them and we test them or even like on, you know, just on a testing week on, you know, whatever we, we are uh, in prep for, but there's a lot of testing. So I get more familiarized with my, whatever new sources, what the market has to offer. But like, you know, I, and also this thing about the eye is always like, mm, mm, I'm missing something, you know? Right. And also the, it's a, it's a, it's an ongoing conversation because it really depends on, again, I insist your director's taste or even the genre. I mean, do we want to see the eyes or do we want to hide the eyes now? So that's a constant sort of, you know, conversation. Uh, should we, no, this is actually a good moment not to see, you know, a sparkle and, you know, let's bet on sadness and, you know, something a little bit moodier. Um, so it's, it's, it's always in, it's, I never, again and again, lucky me, I, I had never, not saying that I don't want to do it, but I had, I never done a movie that was entirely storyboarded right. where not only you know what you're doing, but you can really think ahead. You can actually come back home after a shooting day, go back to your storyboard and actually think, give a, give your gaffer a call. Well, tomorrow is that scene that we plan to do this and this and this. Even a big show like The Crown and even Andor, uh, an actual shooting day is a much more organic thing. You know, you you gather your actors, you do a first rehearsal, you bring your camera operators, you you talk to your director. So do you want to start on a wide shot or you want to start on mid or mid shots? Or so it's it's const, it's a constant sort of exercise of you know prioritizing and you know and and compromising and prioritizing and compromising. So that's the way we play the game, actually. I mean, I, I, I'm sure that I would, uh, I would jump in to whatever feature does if I ever have the chance, but then it's a different game, isn't it? It's right. his game. 
and you have to somehow accommodate and, and be a strong collaborator, but within his visual, uh, realm, right. And, and, and preparation because he preps a lot himself, right? Sure. Uh, I know you have a hard out, so I'll let you go here soon, but I did want to ask, I have, I have a, actually a bunch more questions. We'll have to have you back on, uh, sometime soon. Pleasure. Anytime. Yeah. 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 yeah Cause it's been a lot of fun, but I did want to ask, I saw that, uh, in 2009, you won a cinematography award, right? For Sin Nombre at, uh, Sundance. Sundance. And I, yeah. and I wanted to know, uh, what your position is, uh, about what, 14 years later about the importance of, um, uh, festivals, because I feel like there's a lot of young filmmakers who, uh, I've seen a lot of conversations kind of poo-pooing festivals because maybe they seem elitist or they're not accessible or whatever. But on the other hand, all of my friends who have advanced in the film industry usually comes off the back of festivals. Um, and I was kind of wondering what your position was that, you know, are they as valuable you think today as they were in 2009 has, has something changed between the two? Um, well, there, there were incredible, Sundance was incredibly valuable, uh, valuable to me. Uh, Sinombre was my first international project ever. It took us straight to Sundance and we won, Carrie won a, an, an, a, his award, I won mine. Um, during post-production, I actually did Sinombre without an agent. I didn't have an agent when I shot Sino Umbre. So I got an agent because we had a friend, a friend in common. Then we both went to Sundance when the movie was, you know, I actually went for the premiere. I had to go back to Michigan when I was shooting, I was shooting a movie in Michigan to get a phone call the following Saturday saying, you won, you won. Yes. And I was, I was, and I wasn't there. I mean, anyway, so stories to tell. Um, I, I, I'm not so sure about. I'm not sure if I have enough knowledge to actually have an opinion. Mm. My, I think a festival like Sundance can really benefit. You can really benefit from being there, from meeting people, for have, for even for having your short movie, you know, uh, in exhibition, uh, in, in, in you know, being shown, and you know, the the contacts you make, the people you get to know. So I really think it's an amazing sort of environment, especially Sundance. Yeah. I'm not so sure about Ken or, or Berlin or whatever. They seem to be, they seem to belong to a specific group of people, uh, people. but I, you know, yeah, but I, I, I've never been there. So I think anything I say can sound, you know, yeah. So I, I don't have a strong opinion. I think I, what I see is the Emmys getting and stronger and stronger in comparison to the Oscars, for instance, now you have Meryl Streep running for an Emmy, right? Uh, uh, Nicole Kidman running for an Emmy. And so I think the, the, the way the, the now people value the Emmys, I mean, it was really amazing and how much I have benefited from, I mean, even being here now with you guys and you know how much it changed my career and the way people see, uh, my career, how much more, uh, you can actually think about driving your career in different directions, depending on the attention the industry is giving you. So yeah. I really wanted to do something different from the crown because it was relevant for my CV, rev relevant for my, my future. I mean, who knew that I was going to get hired to do, do Star Wars coming from 
uh, the crown. But, it, you know, because of the Emmys and because the, the people who get to know crown is really, really big, is whatever, 10 million per episode. So it, they know that you're used to doing big stuff and dealing with big problems. Right. So that is in, that's an interesting thing as well. Uh, but that is when you, whatever, when you get to do, you know, the, the good stuff or the big stuff, let's say. But I think festivals are, I mean, fundamental, absolutely fundamental. We, we had, um, uh, was it Dodri actually now on his last episode, his personal assistant was young filmmaker and like he showed me his movie, uh, that is, he's now, I think he's actually showing this Friday. But anyway, it, it, it's the, the entire life of this short movie. I mean, he, this short movie has been seen in like 10 or more than 10 festivals. And might not happen the next morning for you. But like, you know, it's absolutely relevant. It, it's, I think it's vital. I think people should never give up on trying to show your first movies or short movies on, on festivals. You know the Spirit Awards and the and the the Sundance. I mean, they're really very welcoming. Uh, um, I had the most amazing experience last year because they invited me in June to go and be a an advisor for the Directors Lab at Sundance. Mm -hmm. It was, I think, the best thing I did in my life. Honestly, what a week with these young filmmakers, so hungry, you know, for information and feedback and. Uh, your knowledge. They want to sit with you by lunch and they want to ask you. It's just amazing. I, I'm fascinated. I'm, I have a good relationship here with uh, the NFTS, the, the National Film and Television School, where I, you know, there's, has, there has been a, Q, a couple Q&As. They just did, just recently invited me to do a masterclass there. I might actually interview Seamus McGarvey on the 19th now on a kind of a Q&A. They asked me, so I'm very much, you know, there's this thing about, you know, just, just, um, how can I say this? Helping the youngsters to feel more confident. And, right. um, this is something I do frequently. I mean, talk to like, a you know, let's say a younger generation. Yeah. Um, I really, really, really enjoy doing that. And with that, we had to let Adriano go, um, mostly because my internet died. So uh, thank you so much for watching. As always, Frame and Reference is produced by me, Kenny McMillan, and supported by Pro Video Coalition and viewers like you. So if you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to buymeacoffee.com slash frameandrefpod. Uh, and we really appreciate the support. Um, so that's all for now. We'll see you next week.